Chapter Sixteen of Studies in Stagecraft. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Studies in Stagecraft by Clayton Hamilton. Chapter Sixteen Where to Begin a Play. If we look at a procession in the street, we can see easily, at any moment, only three blocks of it, though we may remember what has gone before, and may imagine what is to come after. And, if we were commissioned to take one photograph, and only one, of the parade, we should have to select that single brief period of its passage, which was at the same time most interesting in itself, most reminiscent of all that had preceded, and most suggestive of all that was to follow. Any story of human life that is worth telling in a novel or a play must concern itself with a procession of events that in reality is limitless. But the novelist, restricted to a few hundred pages, or the dramatist, restricted still more rigidly to the two or three hours' traffic of the stage, can exhibit only a brief and bounded picture of the eternal sequence of causation and result. To state this problem more simply, a novel or a play must assume a beginning and an end, but life itself knows neither. Any actual event is, in the inspired phrase of Whitman, an acme of things accomplished and an enclosure of things to be. It is at once the result of innumerable antecedent causes and the motive of innumerable subsequent results. And to dream our way backward or forward over the procession of events, of which it is a momentary incident, must lead us soon to lose our minds in mystery, before the dawn or later than the dusk of imaginable time. With this eternal panorama of experience, our concrete art can cope only by halting the procession at some particularly interesting moment, and catching a sudden picture that shall look a little beyond, in both directions, the single incident on which the camera is focused. Just as different pictures of the same procession in the street may be chosen by photographers who snap their cameras at different moments, so various stories might be selected from the same procession of events by novelists or playwrights who should pick out different moments to begin and end their narratives. Any story, to attract and enthall attention, must exhibit the crisis or climax of a series of events, but the individual artist is left at liberty to decide how far before this crisis he shall set the initiation of his narrative, and how far beyond it he shall set the end. If he is interested mainly in causes, he will choose to depict in detail the events that lead up to his climax, and if he is interested mainly in effects, he will prefer to devote the major share of his attention to those subsequent events that are occasioned by his crisis. Thus we discover in practice two types of narratives, in one of which the main events look forward and are interesting chiefly as causes, and in the other of which the main events look backwards and are interesting chiefly as results. We may select for purposes of illustration the subject matter of the Scarlet Letter. The crisis, or climax, of this imaginary train of incidents is the adultery of Hester Prine and Arthur Dimsdale. Hawthorne has chosen to start his story at a moment subsequent to the occurrence of this crisis, and to devote his attention entirely to a study of the after-effects of the committed sin on the souls of the three characters concerned. But it is conceivable that another novelist, George Eliot, for instance, might have begun the story many years before, 
and might have chosen to deal mainly with the causes that culminated in the crisis that Hawthorne has assumed as a condition precedent to his narrative. Thus we see that two stories, wholly different in plot, might be derived from the same procession of events, according as the novelist should choose to begin his narrative late or early in the sequence of causation. Undoubtedly, in the single instance we had glanced at, Hawthorne began his narrative after the crisis, because The Scarlet Letter was his first novel, and he had been writing short stories for over twenty years. Naturally enough, he constructed this novel as if it were a short story. The writer of short stories is so strictly limited to economy of means that he must deal mainly with results, and must ask the reader to assume the antecedent causes. But the novelist, with his ampler scope of narrative, may deal with causes in detail, and may presume in hasty summary the subsequent results. The handling of the story of the Scarlet Letter, which we have assigned theoretically to George Eliot, is more typical of the method of the novelist than the short story structure which was imposed upon the subject matter by the man who gave the story to the world. In different periods of its development, the drama has oscillated between these two extremes of treatment, and has approached either the strictness of structure that is characteristic of the short story, or the more easy amplitude of narration that is customary in the novel. In certain periods, it has concerned itself mainly with causes, and in others, chiefly, with results. The structure of Greek tragedy was singularly similar to the structure of the modern short story. There are many obvious reasons for this analogy. In the first place, the physical conditions of the Greek theater made it most convenient for the playwright to restrict his exhibition to a single place, and to confine his action within a single revolution of the sun. And in the second place, the fact that the Greek playwright dealt only with traditional materials permitted him to presuppose, on the part of his audience, a knowledge of his entire story that should warrant him in assuming any number of incidents as having happened in imagination before the play began. Thus, at the performance of Oedipus King, the audience merely waited breathless while the hero discovered that appalling inheritance of the accumulated past, of which the audience was thoroughly aware before the play began. The tragedy dealt wholly with results, and not at all with causes. The other extreme of structure is exhibited in the Elizabethan drama. In studying the plays of Shakespeare, we should remember always that nearly all of them were dramatized novels, and that the conventions of the Elizabethan theater encouraged what may be called a novelistic treatment of stories on the stage. Although it was only with apparent difficulty that the Greek playwright could alter the time or place of his action, the Elizabethan playwright could denote a lapse of years, or a shift of scene from one country to another, by the simple expedient of emptying his stage and bringing other actors on to state the new conditions. Using the term act with its modern technical meaning, it may be said that a Greek tragedy was constructed in a single act, but a typical Elizabethan play, like Anthony and Cleopatra, was not conceived in acts, but in an ample and uncounted sequence of half a hundred scenes. Hence it is not surprising that Shakespeare, like a nineteenth-century novelist, devoted more of his attention to the development of causes leading up to his crisis than to the analysis of subsequent results. But the modern drama, reduced by its investiture of scenery to the arrangement of a story in not more than three or four distinct pigeonholes of time and place, has returned more nearly to the Greek method of exhibiting a story in a single act than to the Elizabethan method of stretching a story out through fifty scenes. The exigencies of the modern stage apparently demand that the dramatist shall start his story at a time as late as possible in his procession of events, and shall assume the necessary antecedent incidences in passages of backward-looking exposition. 
thus ibsen's ghosts which from a technical standpoint is one of the very greatest of modern plays is constructed according to the method of sophocles instead of the method of shakespeare the entire narrative that is recounted covers nearly thirty years and yet the actual experience that is exhibited is constrained within the compass of a few hours and a month after we have seen the play we remember with equal vividness those events which were disclosed upon the stage and those other events which were merely narrated in passages of retrospective exposition since the average audience in any period expects the dramaturgic method to which it is habituated it follows that the playwright looking for success should begin his story late or early in his general possession of events according to the fashion of his time at present it is undeniably the custom of the most highly accredited playwrights to catch a story at its climax and to build a play more out of the results than out of the causes of the crisis of the narrative for instance aubrey tanqueray decides to marry paula and panero's play exhibits not the causes leading up to this decision but the tragic series of events resulting from it from these general considerations it should be evident that a playwright in any period may spoil a good story by beginning his play at the wrong moment and exhibiting an ill-selected section of his entire drift of incident ibsen for example spoiled the story of rosmer's home by beginning his play at a point too far along in the general procession of events and many other plays have been spoiled by playwrights who have started their narratives too far before the crisis of a narrative of this latter type an interesting instance is offered in the high road by mr edward sheldon End of chapter 16. Recording by Todd.